0: Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch pod for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co host Jude and Anna. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty well. I really
1: wish we had a screenshot of you posing as you said your newbie host. I'm so disappointed that we were not recording that video because that was a real good pose.
2: Yeah, that was that was some good... That's a like good content right there, um, for this auditory medium.
0: <laughs> there we go. I'm recording it. I've re- I started recording that there, so we'll have a backup, and that uh, we'll at least be able to see me vamp.
1: There we go. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, go. Yeah. Uh, good. Good. Cool. All right. So tonight we are discussing two episodes: episodes seven and eight of season one, the War Prayer and. And The Sky Full of Stars, which somehow that grammatically makes sense. Season 1, Episode 7, The War Prayer, written by DC Fontana. What up? And directed by Richard Cobden. We open our episode with Delenn meeting with Shalmayan, a poet and friend of Delenn's. Mayan has been doing a tour of poetry that will be ending with a visit to Earth, which is a bit uh, significant considering that Shalmayan is a Minbari. After some mutual reminiscing, Mayan leaves for the evening, but she is ambushed in a corridor. She is stabbed, then branded by shadowy figures, while a voice warns her to stay away from Earth. R, a plot for this episode, follows the investigation of the assault, where Delenn rightly demands that the attackers be brought to justice. Garibaldi remarks that this looks to be the work of the Home Guard, a radical xenophobic pro-Earth group that has popped up recently. Garibaldi visits Mayan who says she does not remember anything about the attack. Dr. Franklin offers to remove the brand for Shaw Mayan but she refuses.
1: It should be noted uh, I'm gonna interrupt you here to mention that the brand is the symbol for male and female combined, which is a a buck wild choice.
0: We will get into that and that um, symbols that brand's a uh, symbolism. And some interesting thoughts I have on that regards to Mumbari after the uh, summary. Our B-plot, meanwhile, uh, begins the Centauri ship uh, uh, calling to drop off a pair of detainees. Ivanova goes to customs to meet the prisoners, where two young Centauri are brought forward in handcuffs. They demand to see Ambassador Cotto, while a man from Ivanova's past, a Malcolm Biggs, calls after Ivanova. Biggs tracks Ivanova down after her shift and gets her to talk. The two used to be lovers, and after a little bit of conversation, Ivana excuses herself hurriedly. Garibaldi, meanwhile, uh, questions a man who was found with a bloody knife. The man denies attacking anyone, to, uh, but he does say that the home guard has the right idea. Garibaldi books the man at the weapons charge. Meanwhile, back with our two Centauri, they are... Arya and Kiron, the latter of whom is Veer's cousin. They were under the mistaken impression that Veer was the ambassador on Babylon 5. The two have fled from Centauri Prime as they are both set to participate in arranged marriages, but they are in love with each other. Aw, how sweet. After a brief visit with Kosh regarding the home guard, Sinclair and Ivanova talk about the attempted poisoning of Kosh after his arrival and how the only two people who saw through his encountersuit were both reassigned to Earth. Garibaldi, back in security, has to release the knife owner as the blood matched himself. But Garibaldi hopes that turning this uh, knife-wielding racist loose will generate a lead. Solid work here, detective! Meanwhile, Ivanova and Malcolm have dinner. Ivanova mentions that she does not have any real regrets over choosing her career over Malcolm. Go, you! And Malcolm states that suddenly that he has shifted his business interest to the station, and he has already procured living spaces here. Arya and Kiron are attacked later that evening by the home guard, and Ciaran is rushed to med lab in critical condition. In response, Jakar whips up the aliens of the station out of fury stating that station security cannot protect them and they must take their protection into their own hands. Geyer and Sinclair turn up with a riot team, which uh, eventually quells things. It is a little bit too late, however, as two Drazi have already attacked the knife owner from earlier. While in Medlab, Shalmayan speaks with Ambassador Malari about Arya and Kiron, trying to convince Malari to let the two Centauri marry. Malari bitterly replies that they will have to They will learn to live without love. But Mayan challenges him on that. After an angry confrontation with Veer in the gardens, Londo relents. Roberts, our knife owner from earlier, is recovering in med lab and visited by, oh, who else but Biggs? Of course he's a Nazi! Who tries to recruit him into the home guard. Sinclair has Ivanova help him get undercover uh, to try to help him take down Biggs. After a show of displaying discussed with an alien ambassador at a meeting, Biggs invites Sinclair and Ivanova to his quarters, where he displays straight-up xenophobic and racist views culminating in the claim of Earth First. He offers to introduce Sinclair and Ivanova to others who share his views, but will, display, but will require a display of loyalty. This comes when Sinclair declares the investigations of the attacks closed in return sinclair and Ivanova are introduced to other members of the home guard a group who have radical experimental military hardware they want to assassinate all four alien ambassadors on b5 which will be a spark to their conspirators on earth they do have a loyalty test however sinclair has to murder an alien that is brought before him but it is interrupted by Garibaldi's security team. Sinclair and Ivanova are able to arrest Biggs during the fight. Back with our Centauri Centaurius, Londo has found a solution. He will have the two placed in fosterage with a second cousin, which will free them from their responsibilities and have them educated in Centauri culture. To refuse would be a dishonor. The two will then be able to marry whoever they see fit when they come of age. The two young Centauri thank Malari, and they get to live heavily ever after fingers crossed fingers crossed i don't know I, who knows we might we probably won't see him again
2: i hold out hope for those two kids
0: yeah they're they're good they're good kids they're cute um so yeah that's the war prior that's a pretty it's a pretty tidy episode good a plot good b plot no c plot thank god yeah
2: and for once the a plot and b plot are actually linked
0: yes yeah um so as I said, I want to talk about the brand that is used on Chalbyon. Uh, yeah, in, in the opening, um, the symbol uh, which I'm sure Zathras could put in the show notes uh, is typically used as what we consider a symbol for or is a symbol for hermaphroditism, a word that is often applied to intersex people. And I think that is very interesting that that is used on the Centauri. I'm not sure if this is like a if this is a standard Home Guard thing or if it's something Centauri specific, but it seems very interesting with especially how the Midbari are portrayed on screen as rather uh shall we say gender fluid? Mm-hmm. Like they, they are they don't have uh, both uh all three Minbari we've seen of the show uh, sort of have, I'd say, like androgynous features. Uh, my take, I
1: remember very distinctly the first time I watched these episodes, look seeing that symbol and thinking it was, they picked it because it was, oh, it's male and female. So obviously they're, it's like a symbol for humans. Mm. They were trying to pick a symbol that that was more recognizable than like, like, what is a symbol you can brand on somebody that represents Earth? You can't right. put, like, a big E on somebody or, like, Dr. Manhattan's do- hydrogen symbol or something. Like, what do you <laughs> what do you use? So, like, the male-female symbol. Now, that's not to say I disagree with you because JMS is uh, a chap with layers, and certainly I would not put it past him to have intended that to mean more than it did. But uh, as a, you know, as a younger person, that uh, I interpreted it as being like, oh, this means humans.
2: Yeah, I felt like that was always... Uh, or I, I always felt like that was something that was like a symbol that would be fairly recognizable to the viewer as a human symbol.
0: Interesting. Yeah, just go... Yeah, just go to get blind with that, that. That was just my additional yeah. read with that.
2: Yeah, I, do, I don't disagree that there could be more there. And especially this episode's written by DC Fontana as well, who was a fucking legend.
0: Yes. You, listeners, I will not woot like, random, random people when I introduce their names, but I will do that for DC Fontana. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
1: definitely want to call out um, one thing about uh Delen and Shalmayan here. um we're seven episodes in, and they're doing a really, really interesting job of giving them the minbari a a cool sense of culture and um, Shalmayan continues to expand on that, oh yeah. There's still a little, like, they've managed to keep the Orientalism at this stage is still kind of floating there in the background a little bit with the Minbari, but there's a really good bit of world building in the, the language, which for a language that at this stage is random word salad there isn't any kind of real like word con- uh, language construction going on in the minbari language later on they'll try and like make sense of it but at this time there's it's just words it's just word salad that sounds right um, but in terms of the aesthetic and the the sound that they're using for their language they're doing a really nice job of giving the minbari uh, a coherent feel, which I think is really impressive. Um all of the all of the cultures really uh feel very whole. Uh, yeah. But I, I particularly think the Minbari are a more nuanced uh one, relatively speaking, than like Jakar is the only one we see of the of, of the Narn for a very long time and all we see of and Jakar, Lord love him. Uh, is fantastic. But we don't get a, a real good view of the Narn culture for a very long time. And we see more of the Centauri culture. Uh, but the Minbari, I think, is it's just a, a cool bit of world building, which I appreciate.
2: And I love, I love the description of this sort of poetry that Mayan writes. I'm trying to remember exactly what it is, but it's something of like trying to like provoke positive memories of love or something along those lines and in the in the actual show it's described very nicely and I'm always like hey I would go I would go see that show
0: so we get some uh, I think this is like maybe our our first look into the the sort of right-wing future of B5 or at least what the growth of what we're going to see grow into some pretty authoritarian stuff uh on earth. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's it's pretty chilling.
0: The home guard are a they're not exactly a political group. They are they are the they're they're the proud boys that's really what they are.
1: Yeah. I was literally opening my mouth to make that reference when you said it yeah they're they're the space proud boys,
0: yeah uh, yeah, and um gosh I'm gonna keep wanting to say Briggs Malcolm Biggs is just a name that it should be Malcolm Briggs, right uh, <laughs> anyways,
1: um, yeah, he continues uh i I don't think he's the first one i'm I'm struggling to remember the, the exact timing whether uh uh Talia's terrible ex came before or after this episode
2: i believe after
0: after jesus yeah. or, or another ex Jason's <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the only one. ex of talia's i we've encountered uh, so far really i think so <laughs> yeah okay well then yeah um,
2: the uh Ta- talia's ex
0: the the the, the other
2: one with the other one who was experimented on by Psychor. Is later.
0: God, okay. what was Italia's coffee?
2: <laughs> I know,
1: right? Um, okay, so yeah, so this kind of can, this sort of begins the tradition of a distinguished Babylon Five trope of everybody's exes being somewhere on somewhere on the spectrum that begins with awful and ends with outright villain. Yeah, like the only out, the only outlier on this is uh sinclair's ex who he hooks up with right away and therefore becomes not an ex becomes his actual girlfriend thereby avoiding the trope
2: and she she doesn't escape the awfulness in that like they have zero chemistry as we've noticed before yeah but she but she yeah. is a good person who we like on paper if not on screen
1: yeah sakai is like a good character and like when she's not on screen with him, I actually really like her character. It's yeah. just, you know, their chemistry sucks all the air out of the room in the worst way.
2: Speaking of exes, though, who else here got the feeling from this episode of there being, like, chemistry or something in the past between Mayan and Delenn?
1: Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh,
0: yeah. Like, they, they, they at least have, like, we we had a fling at summer camp vibes. yeah. One of my one of my notes for this episode, back in like the three second span when this was just a Twitter thread and not a show, was that uh, Delenn throws some real good distinguished gay vibes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially especially season one Delen. Yeah.
1: Yeah, not so much season two, but season one for sure. Uh mean like Bonehead uh Delen,
0: definitely. Londo's not a terrible person with us. Let's let's just let's just throw it up for Londo here. Yeah, like actually makes the, like the right decision, uses his knowledge of like Centauri politics and culture to help two people out. Like, good on you.
2: And this episode is really strong, honestly, for both Veer and Londo. Um, yeah. Veer has some really good lines, some really good moments, and the two of them have some good interactions and. I think this is the first example that we get of Veer actually standing up for something that he believes in, that he's he's standing up for these two kids. Yeah. And we'll see more of that.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it kind of establishes the relationship between Lando and Veer where the the way that their relationship works, which is when Veer really wants something from Lando, he knows how to push back on Lando now. Yeah. He he knows that he has to really get in Londo's face. He has to get real angry with Londo, but that now he knows that Londo is not a brick wall. He knows he's not intractable. And um it's real nice character building that they establish with this incident that it's possible. He can reach Londo if he makes enough of a ruckus with him. Yeah, <laughs> I like that, a, these two kids are. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't know who the ambassador to Macronesia is, or Micronesia is, or much of anywhere, but I I do know Veer, (laughs) and I think it's reasonable to not know who the ambassador to Babylon 5 would be.
0: But if you're going there!
1: But it's not reasonable to think it's Veer. (laughs) <laughs> That's where I have an objection to this plot line.
2: Yeah. On on the other hand, we know that Babylon 5 is an absolute shit posting, as far as the Centauri are concerned. Like, that Londo is stuck there to kind of get rid of him. To some extent, at least.
1: To some extent, yes. He, but again...
2: He capitalizes on the posting, but...
1: And it makes something of it, for sure. Yeah. But again, as I pointed out... It's Veer. I don't, especially at this stage in his career. I, I reject the idea that anyone would believe that Veer could be an ambassador of
0: anything.
2: On the other hand, these are like, like sixteen-year-old kids.
0: Yeah, Jude, haven't you ever been a dumbass teenager? Yes,
1: uh, <laughs> yes, but nonetheless, I also, you know, it's Veer. I love him, but that- like. I just have difficulty believing that anybody would, would look at Veer and be like, sure, somebody in the government put him, uh, well, government, <laughs> ran into, hoisted my own petard there. Uh, yeah, Roland, and I don't know.
2: My guess also is that maybe Veer is better over email. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's it. That's it. Veer, Veer probably sends go. lovely emails. Like, he is, he yeah. like, mm-hmm. Veer has like strong millennial who does it who, who has never taken a phone call energy
1: yeah yeah uh absolutely <laughs> yeah veer really is a millennial isn't he, he
0: yes, really is.
1: wow yeah him him and him and uh natoff no not natoff natoff is definitely Gen X. lanier um, lanier him and lanier have both have real strong millennial energy
0: <laughs> well, God, that's, that's really true. good that's, so, that's, that's so really good. entertaining um, uh,
1: I, I like this I like this, this interpretation very much
0: so I'm going to draw attention to possibly my favorite why for this episode where it, it's in a scene where Veer is explaining the situation to Londo and Veer says but they love each other and Londo replies love pop, overrated here look these are my three wives. Pestilence, famine, and death. Do you think I married them for their personalities? Their personalities could shatter entire planets. Hey, Zathros here. I just wanted to point out how good Justin's uh, Londo is. Uh, listen to this clip. Send them home where they belong and hope they come to their senses. But they love each other. Love, ah, overrated. Here, look,
1: these are my three wives. Pestilence,
0: famine, and death. Do you think I married them for their personalities? Their personalities could shatter entire planets. Arrange marriages, everyone. But they worked out. They inspired me. Knowing that they were waiting at home for me is what keeps me here, 75 light years away. But they love each other. And Lauderdos replies, love, pa, overrated. Here, look, these are my three wives Pestilence, Famine, and Death. Do you think I married them for their personalities? Their personalities could shatter entire planets. Now, we have to talk about this. Because if the wives are Pestilence, Famine, and Death, what does that make our dear Ambassador Lando Molari? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> uh. That makes him more.
2: Yeah, for you're those onto something there. you that don't read X
1: Men, yeah. Oh, I guess in the Bible too. I guess. Yeah, that's yeah. I, the four. In, ca- in case your context for the four horsemen is not Apocalypse, uh, and is instead, you know, Jesus.
0: Gosh, I wonder if I could do Apocalypse close and have uh, have Zathras do like after after digital like editing to make my voice sound like Apocalypse. <laughs>
1: Okay, now, my question here is, uh, who is Apocalypse, then, in this scenario? Is it JMS, or would it be, like, the Shadows? Would one of the Shadows be Apocalypse? I think it's JMS, though.
0: We can say JMS. I also accept uh, low-budget John Travolta.
1: Okay, fair.
0: Um, Listeners, we've watched ahead. Low-budget Tron Travolta is going to be a meme that will show up on the show. We will explain it eventually. Yes. It's certainly what he wants to be. <laughs> yeah. It's really what he looks like. Matter is he's just the, like, dramatic Ross Geller. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Wow. Okay. DC Fontana is a legend and we stand. Yes. Oh, and we, sorry, we do have one more show note in our Who's That 90s actor.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right.
0: So, um, in our uh, your guide to '90s bit sci-fi actors, um, so Arya Tenzes, who is the the gal of those two star-crossed lovers, is played by Danica McKellar, who was known for various things. Those like things what? Known like
1: what? Justin, <laughs> name name the first one that comes to mind.
0: The one that came to mind for me was that she's done a lot of voice acting roles, and I know her as Miss Martian on Young Justice. And we have a generational gap here. (laughs)
1: Uh, It should be noted that I am very slightly older than Justin, and uh, I grew up watching The Wonder Years. So for me, Dana McKellar is and will always be Winnie Cooper. And I responded somewhat abrasively that it you know with that information and the blank response i got from Justin made me feel about 400 years old and also was interesting because apparently wonder years has not stood the test of time uh because that apparently is not the cultural artifact that i thought it was going to be so go figure wonder years not a uh, not as memorable as uh, everybody thought it was going to be go figure
2: Interesting, interesting. Um, and and I kind of split the difference between you two, age-wise, but grew up largely not watching television other than Babylon Five and Star Trek. So,
1: so for you, Danica McC- Danica McKellar was a Centauri.
2: Yes. Yep.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Uh-huh. We hit the triple play here.
1: Yeah. There you go.
2: As as a side note, also on the costuming for the Centauri, I love how. They, so, so for all the Centauri women, they've got kind of, they're kind of like largely bald except with a ponytail.
0: Yes, they're, they're Warhammer 40,000 uh, space parts.
2: Yeah. But so, so the, for costuming, they've developed this costume aspect for the Centauri women of having them have a headband around where the bald cap ends. Which I can tell is just a costume thing, but also it fucking works. Like, it it looks good as part of the general costume for them. And, like, <laughs> they've always got, like, jewelry and stuff like that with it. Which is...
1: I never cool. noticed that. No? That that was what they were using it for.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's to hide the seam. Oh, huh? that's cool. Our next one is, uh, the Sky Full of Stars, right?
0: Yes. Episode w- 1.8, And the Sky Full of Stars, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Janet Greek. Two men arrive on the station. They talk about their target and show an image Sinclair. Meanwhile, a guard, Frank Benson, is summoned to Sinclair's office with Garibaldi present. They are aware that Benson has wrecked up a large amount of debt while gambling and that he's being taken off duty pending an investigation. The two shadowy men from earlier are setting up some equipment in a living space, discussing power sources and what they have to improvise. In Medlab, Lab, Delenn is being inspected by Dr. Franklin, who is happy to have a baseline for the Minbari. When Delenn inquires about what the good doctor did during the war, Franklin explains that he was recruited by Earth Force to try to develop bioweapons against the Minbari, but he destroyed his notes rather than comply. When he asks Delenn, Len, what she did during the war, she brushes it off and smiles.
2: I think that's the exact moment when you tweeted, wait,
0: is the a war criminal? (laughs) Listen, I can't love people and them not be war criminals. This is just how my fandom goes. I just have bad taste. Um, Benson meets with our two shadowy agents and he supplies them with a power source. The agents state that he will be paid well, but Benson becomes angry when they refuse to honor their promise to transfer him off the station. While sleeping that night, Sinclair has a nightmare about the Battle of the Line and awakens to find the station offline. He is able to restore the computer in CIC, but he is the only life form on the station. When heading through the station, one of the agents, Knight 2, confronts him. Knight 2 is there to test Sinclair. He does not believe the official report that Sinclair filed that he blacked out at the Battle of the Line and lost 24 hours. Knight 2 vows to find the truth, while Sinclair resists. Knight 2 uses a conjured image of Sinclair's wingmate to try to stir him, but Sinclair's angry response disrupts their neural link. Meanwhile, back on the actual station, they're on alert as Sinclair missed a meeting with Delenni. Garibaldi cannot find Sinclair and his link, and he tries to work with Delenn and Franklin to try and search the station. Night 2 overhears a conversation from the searchers, and believes they only have 3 or 4 hours, and orders the dosage of drugs for Sinclair be up, despite the possibility that it might cause brain damage. When Garibaldi's aide reports that all hands are on deck for the investigation, even Benson, Garibaldi questions why Benson was called in. Garibaldi's aide responds that Benson's accounts are clean now. Garibaldi finds that there were several payments made, and Benson's account even now has a surplus in it. Benson visits the two knights, concerned about the search. When he hears Sinclair's cry from the VR chair, he comes in, and Knight One murders him and jettisons his body into space. Garibaldi is eventually able to find the body as it has been dragged in by the station's gravitational pull, and he uses the location of the body to narrow the search. Back in cyberspace, Knight 2 continues to push on Sinclair. Sinclair has a memory of a circle of figures cloaked in gray. Knight 2 demands to know the meaning of this. Sinclair resists, but then the knight posits his theory that the Menbari calculated that a conquest of Earth would be too costly, so they instead devised another method of conquest, infiltration, using sleeper agents so they could take Earth down from the inside. Sinclair rebuffs this, thinking that the Minbari would never have needed to do this, and that they could have just bombed them back to the Stone Age. After more pushing, Night 2 is able to bring forth the one thing that made Sinclair doubt his story. When an Minbari assassin, back in the unair pilot we haven't watched, declared, there is a hole in your mind, Sinclair relents to Night 2's probing, deciding he really wants to know what happened. He remembers being brought aboard the Minbari cruiser, bound and confronted by the Cloak figures. When trying to resist, he pulled back the hood of one of the Minbari. Delenn, it turns out. Then he blacked out. Sinclair is able to break free from the cybernet, causing a feedback that disables Night 2. Sinclair is able to escape and take Night 1's PPG, going into Down Below. He shoots at a security guard who he sees as a Minbari, but the guard is killed by Night 1. Sinclair makes his way to the Zocalo and gets into a firefight with Night One. Night One is wounded by Garibaldi, who becomes Sinclair's new target. Franklin warns Garibaldi that Sinclair may be under the influence of psychoactive drugs, which, well, no, you think? Delenn approaches Sinclair, who aims his PPG at her. He finds it hard to discern memory from reality. He whispers, I know you and then quickly shoots night one before passing out. Uh, Sometime later in med lab, it's explained that the two knights are part of an organization alleging a conspiracy between the Earth and Minbari. Night two is being taken to Earth, but he has severe trauma that has debilitated him to the point where he cannot remember his own name. Later, Sinclair meets with Delenn and thanks her for her help with recovering from his delusions. She asks him what he remembers. He says nothing. After he leaves, a mysterious Minbari appears, who warns Delenn that if Sinclair ever finds out what happened to him, he will have to be killed? Back in Sinclair's quarters, he makes a personal lock. He remembers everything, and he believes those figures were the Great Council, and he will figure out what happened. Da, da, da. No B plot for this one. We're just rolling along with a very good episode. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, I think it's interesting that apparently Earth is just riddled with well-supplied conspiratorial organizations. Yeah. Like, yeah. This um, is what like the third or fourth that we've had so far.
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty wild.
0: Yeah, do we count uh Interstellar Expeditions or whatever it is? Yeah, it's just silly that there's <laughs> so many of these like well-funded nut jobs. It's almost yeah. like
2: perhaps they are being supported by some larger organization that has an overarching plan.
0: Bah, bah, bah. Just, like, give me that, like, piano note from Battlestar Galactica.
2: It's interesting that you note that there's not a B-plot for this. Um, and I think, I think, you know, the episode works really well, despite not having a B-plot, partly because the flipping back and forth between the inside Sinclair's mind and the other people on the station scenes kind of serves a bit of the purpose of going back and forth between a B plot and a plot does.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty tight uh it's a pretty tight episode and like they are able to have some fun with the inside and outside and I think this is better than like a lot of like we're going to use cyberspace to go inside someone's head episodes. Yeah. Part of that is just because it's very antagonistic. Yeah. I
1: really like, though, the the way that they they execute it. They don't make it about, like, they're in his mind. They focus on what the point of being in his mind is. Like, it's a narrative device, and they don't linger on, like, the device itself. They're there to excavate these memories, and that's the focus of it. (laughs) Um, A lot of shows get, like, Star Trek, cough, cough, Star Trek, Um, get a little too like techno babbly with like, they're in his mind and they get, you know, weird psychoactive landscapes and CG, bad CG and techno babble. And these guys are just like, he's fighting you shoot him up with more drugs. And you're just like, all right. Like they, they don't overdo it. And it, but, and I'm, this is a lot of talk to say, it works because the babble gets out of the way really easily. So you can focus on what they're doing, which is trying to get at these memories he's been repressing or have been repressed. So it it works. Like you focus on, on that element of the plot and not on the method that they're using.
0: Yeah. It's, I, I, it's, it's, it's an enhanced interrogation technique really. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and it's, I do like also that it's a little bit more VR than going into his mind with telepathy or something like that. That And this is on a show that has telepaths.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, Which
2: is wild.
1: Yeah, you, you got to wonder what – there's no way he has – I mean, maybe he hasn't been. I shouldn't say that. Maybe he's never been scanned But since the, there. But I find it hard to believe that Earth Force did not make him sit for a scan after the war if he was relatively high-ranked and went missing during the Battle of the Line and nobody bothered to, like, scan him to figure out what happened?
2: Yeah, that's a a good question.
1: Somehow these guys with what appears to be, like, a pretty ramshackle goddamn rig are able to, like, dig this memory out of him.
0: I I believe that the, the technical term for that is jank. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, um, like it is like it is literally just shit we smuggled in through customs yeah. and then attached a big power source to, yeah. um, yeah, which is cool. And, um, I it almost looks like something that you'd like maybe expect like the heroes to use in a, in a different like in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a different military sci fi setting, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, I will admit that I actually. This is
1: not an episode I tend to rewatch when I rewatch it because I think this is one of those episodes that the good parts of this episode are replayed in flashback so much in subsequent episodes that the stuff that, like, the actual, like, night one, night two stuff is the less interesting stuff than, like, the revelations in this episode. Right. And those revelations get reiterated so much over the next couple of episodes. Yeah. That I never feel like I am missing anything by skipping this episode. So I never I very yeah. rarely watch this one unless I'm feeling completionist.
2: Yeah, we yeah. we have a lot of like previously on Insides in Claire's mind.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: But it's it's a solid episode. I'm I'm also in that camp.
1: Yeah, I don't wanna denigrate it. I don't yeah. wanna denigrate it. It's yeah. a good episode. It's well done. I just it's an episode that you can you don't need to watch multiple times.
2: The moments that I that stood out to me as somebody who's actually in the same camp of generally skipping this episode on rewatches, I felt like a lot of the Delenn scenes were stand out, much more so than the night one night two stuff because like you said the revelations come back again and again, but there are some really good Delenn moments, like the the moment where she gets Sinclair to stand down is really good. And that's <laughs> mirrored a few times in various other episodes.
1: I would love to have seen the alternate universe version of this show where Sinclair doesn't leave at the end of season one. Yeah. Because I I would have been curious to have seen how that relationship would have developed between Sinclair and Delenn. Yeah. Because it's real different than the one that they establish right away between his replacement and Delenn. Cause she's a very different—not very different—but she's a different character in season one. She has a—they—not a, a, to be too punny with it—but they humanize her a fair bit when she comes out of her, you know, thing at the top of season two. So I would have been interesting to see what season, how they, whether they would have done that with, you know, with Sinclair staying or whether it would have been—I don't know—would have been interesting to see. But yeah, I, I like those moments with her. She's got steel in her. In her. And uh, when she shows it, it's always fun. Even after season two, even in season two and beyond, she still has that part, though, which I like.
2: Yeah. And and we also get her, you know, saying that, you know, she'll do like that, that she immediately offers to help with the search for Sinclair, et cetera, as well. That she's there wanting to help in whatever way she can. Mm hmm. Speaking speaking of changes with Delenn's character between season 1 and season 2, I really find it interesting that this episode the, the scene with Delenn and Franklin in Medlab. Essentially Delenn is establishing a medical baseline between this point and season 2 in which she mm-hmm. has different physiology. Yeah. Which is which is interesting.
1: He he's the first one she goes to as well after yeah, well, after linear, but
0: yeah I think I think that is pretty interesting, just like that she's like getting and it's like she's going to a human doctor for it, and I just find that interesting, um as a first time viewer and like knowing and looking back on it, I think it's like a good episode for like setting up stuff the the my initial reactions after watching this uh, this episode was is Sinclair a fucking minbari plant? I remember what you tweeted. Mike. Oh yeah. And I'm like there's there's stuff here
2: because at this point we really don't know what's going on with Sinclair. So, you know, without having seen the rest of the series, you know, it's really not clear whether Sinclair is in fact a sleeper agent. Like that's entirely plausible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do we have to have a headphones moment here to talk about? If you want to have a headphones moment, we can have a headphones moment.
2: Justin's seen all of season two, right?
1: That's not... But no, we're talking about like season three stuff.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: The Valen revelation, the episode where he comes back and goes back in time with uh, B4 is in season three.
2: Oh, those are such good episodes.
1: Yeah, and that's where the revelation of who he is is right where the revelation that he's valen
2: and that's going to be we're going to have a great conversation about that at that point but yeah Mm -hmm. it's not super clear up until then that sinclair's not just like a sleeper agent somehow
1: Well, well it's just wild because like his whole thing at the battle of the line is this big dangling like gym climbing rope of a plot thread that they're, they, they're they just, it's just hanging there. And they don't do anything with it until
0: season three. And then they're just like, whoop,
1: he's failing. Yeah.
0: Okay. I'm looking forward to listening to these episodes in the future once I've completed the series. And finding out that really it's just June and Anna plotting my demise.
2: It's it's just <laughs> us reiterating one precise plot point about, like, once an episode.
1: It really kind of is. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> oh, lovely
2: there's a big sinclair thing that you haven't seen yet
0: cool <laughs> cool all right all right all right yeah we also get like we also get a little bit more on like the just what the battle of the line is and how desperate it was yeah yeah
1: they really elaborate how fucked humanity was like they've mentioned it before but this episode expands on the notion of how precisely screwed humans were.
2: Humans came really close to the Membari just wiping them off the damn map.
1: Yeah. Pretty much the width of, of Sinclair's life, basically. His his heartbeat was all that separated humanity from extinction.
0: Just wild. For all intents
1: and purposes.
0: I do find it interesting of like, I don't know how much of pre- like say like pre space, like pre space colonization Earth history we get on this, but I wonder if that's the closest that humanity comes to extinction since like the Cold War. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just I, I'm just curious if there's like any other uh, like this is the thing I'm just like as somebody who likes like background history of Earth in like 23rd uh, there's century. There's the thing
2: with San Diego.
0: Right, but that was, like, a single terrorist attack, right? Right. So it depends on... Um, oh! Oh! Mm. <sighs> Listen, like, they're, they're like my, my, my knowledge of what Earth is is, like, very weird and limited. Like, I know there's baseball on Mars. It
1: depends on which direction in time you're talking about.
0: Cool, 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 all right, all right, all right, all right. I don't know what to do with that mysterious thing. Uh do we have anything else that we want to talk about with this episode? Well I I'll, I'll say that ripping
2: off of your comment that you know this the Nimbari war is the closest that humans come to annihilation perhaps. It's also interesting because they're it's really coming off of the heels of the Dilgar war which yeah earth like fucking rocked at. Yeah. And so that I think played into Earth being just super cocky going into the conflict with Minbari because, like the the Dilgar, as we'll talk about in Deathwalker, were not a unadvanced race, but that's but that's you know getting into next episode.
1: Yeah, but they're not on the same scale as uh, the Minbari. The Dilgar are of a different generation. They're of they're contemporaries to Earth and. Uh, like Earth and Narn and Centauri, right? Uh, as opposed to the Minbari, which are of a an older generation of of races.
2: Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that the victory against the Dilgar played into Earth being way too confident. Oh,
1: for sure. They were like, "Well, we already beat up one person, one spacefaring race. Why can't we take on another one?" I roll. (laughs) Sure, let's go take on a race that's been spacefaring since we were running around on chariots in Rome. No big deal. You know, we'll we'll have to buy half of our guns Not, from they, even earlier than that. They were like fighting wars in space. They were a in, uh, uh, interstellar uh, they were fighting interstellar wars when we when the Roman Empire was was in its heyday.
2: Which is wild yeah Some, sometime we're gonna have to talk about like sci-fi cultural stagnancy though
0: that would be an interesting thing because I, I think there there's yeah. a we should have like just like essays that we do like, like we should have like audio essays we do about this uh but those would be like other episodes
2: yeah more things for
1: Zathrus. yeah more things for uh, Zathrus. Yeah, Uh, Closing bits on this one, I know you wanted to talk about uh, alternate casting in this episode, Justin.
0: Yes, off of Lurker's Guide, um, the original role for Night 2 was supposed to be Walter Koenig. However, uh, schedules did not match up, so GMS called his fucking shot and tried to get Patrick McGuin on to do this, which would have been an all-time, just like... Fantastic thing!
1: Can you imagine though? I can't imagine that. That that is a bananas bit yeah. of casting.
0: I mean, that that's entirely the point where you're casting someone as a cultural in reference joke. Yeah, McGoohan apparently was not a fan of doing like TV guest spots, but agreed to this. But then the schedules mixed up because of, of they had to change recording dates. uh Um. So instead, we get this random guy who does a pretty damn good job. Yeah,
2: I'm. I'm glad that it didn't end up being. Walter Koenig, because he yeah. just absolutely slaps as Bester.
0: Yeah, basically the, the whole schedule mix-up was like, okay, like the Mind War, basic basically Mind War and the Sky Full of Stars basically like switched, like swapped shooting dates because of availability.
2: Interesting. Huh.
0: And so like, they had Kenning in the slot, so it was like, okay, we've got that. Okay, congratulations, you're playing this cop now.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah and boy does he absolutely kill it.
0: Yeah. All right. Um I think that is both of our episodes. Um I think these were these were two good ones. There, there there's there's not there's not even a bad B plot in either of them.
2: Yeah. Yeah, they're they're both pretty solid and slot in nicely to the rest of the universe.
0: All right. Well, dear listeners, we have completed two episodes our duty is done uh we will be returning with two non-sequential episodes next time because we don't like to keep things uh standard here (laughs) until next time be seeing ya the babylon project is an independent production all views expressed on the show are our own clips from the original show remain property of the original owner Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 Share-Alike derivatives license.